morning, Skylight Church. And welcome to today's Sunday Online. On the back of Pete's message last week, we want to continue on our journey of learning and growing. And as we told you, we have invited Reverend Dr. Kate Coleman to speak to us this morning. Now, Kate's been in the diary scheduled to speak to us for a really long time. But when we were chatting through what we wanted her to bring, we asked her deliberately to speak into some of the racial injustice that we have been witnessing across the world. We know that it's not new, but it seems to be being highlighted in a new way. And we as a church are committed to standing against racism. So we're adopting that posture of learners and we're growing together. Kate is an amazing leader. She is a fantastic theologian. She's wise, she's considered, she's prophetic, she's insightful. And we know that what she is going to share this morning will be valuable for us as a church family. So over to you, Kate. So it's great to be able to share with you all at Skylock, even if it's only virtually for now. And what a time for me to be sharing. This date has been in, in my diary uh, since the end of last year, um, but I'm aware that I'm sharing with you at a highly prophetic, pivotal moment in history. Um, so over the past few weeks, many of us have been shocked and um, dismayed at the racist actions of Amy Cooper, uh, the senseless killing of Armand Arbery, um, and the public murder of uh, George Floyd in the US. But the UK has had its share of incidents as well, uh, such as the woman uh, who died after being deliberately spat and coughed on in London, Victoria in April. Um, Shukri Abdi, uh, a 12 year old girl who drowned while another child looked on and laughed um, just this past year. Uh, Julian Cole, who suffered a broken neck at the hands of police at the age of 19 um, that left him paralyzed and brain damaged in, in 2013. So how do we follow Jesus in a racialized world? Black people are 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. They're four times more likely to be tasered. They make up just over 3% of the population, and yet they account for 12% of the prison population. Not because they harbor more criminal tendencies than white people, but because they're more likely to be imprisoned for something a white person would not be imprisoned for. In the past five years, 38% of black, Asian minority ethnic people have been wrongly suspected of shoplifting compared to just 14% of white people. And one in four have felt they've been stopped at airport security or customs um, because of their ethnicity. Um, in fact, uh, my friend Cham and I used to bet on which one of us would get stopped at airport security whenever we traveled out of the country. Um, I was winning. Uh, up until 9-11, after which she won, hands down. Um, she's uh, Asian, by the way. As you know, we're also twice as likely as white Britons to die from COVID-19, not because it attaches to some mysterious race gene, but because the cumulative effects of racism leaves us more susceptible to the virus. 
My point is that racism isn't just over there, it's alive and well on our shores too. And we usually tiptoe around the subject. You've probably noticed that I'm not planning to tiptoe around the subject today because you know and I know it's only the truth that sets us free. And Britain is a nation that has long valued some bodies over others, men over women, the rich over the poor, Christian over Jewish, white over black. This is a pivotal moment. I know this because I'm a student of history and church history. I've seen it before. And I know that pivotal moments present opportunities to lay hold of God's promises and to move us towards a new normal, but only if we're prepared to lay hold of them. So we're gonna reflect on what it means to follow Jesus in a racialized world. But I want to do this through the medium I love best. We're gonna to turn to the Bible, the story of God's journey with God's people, and we're gonna discover what wisdom it has for us at times like these. We're gonna visit a very specific pivotal point in the life of the early church. You'll find it in Acts chapter six from verse one to seven. I'm gonna read it uh, from the message version. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers, because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. So the Twelve called a meeting of the disciples. They said it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the Word of God to help with the care of the poor. So friends, choose seven men from among, your, from among yourselves, whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and will assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned tasks of prayer and speaking God's word. The congregation thought this was a great idea. They went ahead and chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Then they presented them to the apostles. Praying, the apostles laid on hands and commissioned them for their task. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Not least, a great many priests submitted themselves to the faith. So in this story, we're made aware of five groups of people. The first, Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists. Hebrew-speaking believers. The apostles, um, who also happen to be Hebrew-speaking believers. The church, are the fourth group. And the seven who were eventually entrusted with ensuring that action would be taken are the fifth group. The Hellenists, all Greek-speaking believers, were Jews from the diaspora. They had been born and raised in Greek-speaking countries outside of Israel. They'd adopted Greek ways, Greek dress, and Greek language. Whereas Hebrew believers were native Jews. They were born and raised in Israel. They spoke Hebrew and Aramaic and pretty much kept to the old traditions of Judaism, including in their style of dress. They also considered theirs the purer expression of faith. Now, we meet both of these groups at the birthing of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verse, from verse 5. We read, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
and we learn that they were Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, they said. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, the disciples, and said, they have had too much wine. As the church was birthed, they were thrown together by the power of the Spirit with their distinctives still intact, yet with their barriers, including the barrier of language, collapsed. Unfortunately, this Pentecost party lasted uh, less than five years before the unspoken attitude of superiority and entitlement that was ingrained in the majority Hebrew culture spilled over into discriminatory practices within the church. This is when the Greek-speaking Hellenists found themselves on the receiving end of an injustice that was so great they had to speak out. Uh, and different translations describe their problem um, as their widows were being overlooked. Another translation, discriminated against. Another translation, neglected. Clearly, whatever was going on was negative, life-threatening, systemic, and pervasive. And they were unhappy enough about it to make their voices heard. Even the way that discrimination spilled over is, is important. Because in Jewish law, women did not receive an inheritance. They were dependent upon their husbands or another male relative, which means that widows often had no means of support. So the early church took its responsibility to support widows very seriously. And it was precisely as the church was trying to do something right that they discovered that something was very wrong. In fact, this passage could just as easily read, during this time as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. And guess what? They weren't wrong. But it appears that the Hebrew-speaking believers were quite literally blissfully unaware of what they were allowing to happen in their midst. Even the apostles, Hebrew-speaking believers themselves, hadn't noticed what was going on until it was brought to their attention. Now, I'm not suggesting that their actions were deliberate or incidental, conscious or unconscious, knowing or unknowing. But what we do know is that the same ugly, ethnocentric, xenophobic, elitist behaviors that existed in their general society was well and truly alive in their church. And having been left unchallenged, it was now woven into their church structures. Let me just say that racism wasn't really a thing before it was invented before in, in 16th, 17th century um, as a way of justifying uh, the domination of an entire continent of peoples by another peoples through slavery. Now, how do you think the apostles dealt with this? Maybe they said, oh, the Hellenists, they're imagining it. They're a bit oversensitive about these things because of their background. It's, it's a foreign thing. 
I can't see it. Can you see it? Don't they know we love them? Now, this isn't a priority for the church. Let's just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. But that's precisely the problem. These things don't go away. They go underground and smolder. They create resentment and distrust. They destroy the very thing we've been trying to build and create deep-seated conflict that contradicts everything we say is true of God's plan for humanity. And interestingly, the resulting conflict in this case presented the church with both a danger and an opportunity. Things could either collapse or things could get turned around. And this turned out to be one of those revealed to redeem moments. The Holy Spirit revealed a problem and tur that turned into an opportunity and equipped the believers to resolve an issue that their whole society had no answer for. They had an opportunity to become like the effective salt Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5, rather than simply a microcosm of their own world. Our church can grow to a certain stage with these attitudes and destructive cultural patterns intact. The, the, the New Testament church was 5,000 plus by this time. But after that, churches begin to lose credibility and moral authority. If they want to grow in maturity, a time always comes when certain behaviors and practices are brought into the light and they have to decide whether to deal with them or bury them. Now, the reason I say that this was a pivotal point um, in history and in church history is because the promise of the church emerged in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that I've just read when that multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational, mixed-gender gathering was powerfully impacted by the preaching of Peter and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And of all the utterances available to Peter as he tried to explain what was going on to the crowds, it was Joel's vision of a God-soaked future that the Holy Spirit prompts him to use. So this is what he said. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Joel's vision presents the tantalizing promise of diversity and wholesale male-female equality for the very first time. And of course, it sounds great and probably very obvious to us, but to a culture that had little time or esteem for children, youth, or women. And as for foreigners, what Peter was prophesying was the unimaginable. They, this didn't look or sound like anything they'd ever known before. But this promise would become a new normal, where the distances between race, class, and culture were no longer barriers. And we fast forward 15 years or thereabouts, and we catch a glimpse of this new normal in Acts 13. From verse 1, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So the leadership of this church had Hellenistic and Hebrew Jews, together with Gentiles from Southern Europe, North Africa, and what we now call Sub-Saharan or Black Africa. And they spoke Aramaic, Greek, and many other languages. And this diversity in the leadership not only reflected the diversity of their church, it also reflected the diversity of their city, Antioch, a city with a wide cultural mix of people, including Syrians, Romans, Greeks, Arabs, Persians, Armenians, Parthians, Cappadocians, and Jews. And this leadership stood out in a city that was also characterized by ethnic tensions and race or ethnic riots. And it was so different to anything anyone had seen before that it was here at Antioch, in this place, that the followers of Jesus were first labeled those with Christ in them, Christians. It's the Antioch model that became the model for the expression of the early church. So what happened to it, I hear you ask? Well, we have to reclaim it together with the vision of Acts 2. Because without the vision of Acts 2, the ugly truth of Acts 6 would never have stood out. And without the pivot point of Acts 6, the new normal of Acts 13 would never have been made possible. But the journey to this new normal is not an easy one. In Acts chapter 6, it was the Hellenists, not the Hebrews, who noticed the persistent pattern of discrimination. It was they who noticed their widows were being overlooked. And even as hard feelings and resentment began to arise among them, it was the Hellenists who eventually challenged what was happening. My point is this, those without power are usually the first to notice what those with power do not. I call this the curse of privilege. Someone described their privilege in, in these terms. We largely do not recognize the structural access we enjoy, the trust we think we deserve, the assumption that we always belong and do not have to earn our belonging. All this we take for granted as normal. Only the outsider can spot these attitudes in us. People who benefit from the status quo of structural discrimination seldom notice when it's taking place because they're not impacted negatively by it. Instead, it's those on the receiving end who feel it and are often the first to speak up. When you're on the receiving end of racial injustice, it can be pretty tough. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to shine a light on it. So many things are at stake. Your job, your reputation. There goes that angry black woman again. Oh, he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. They're always pulling the race cart. And then you have to do it graciously and it's hard, it's wearying, it's painful. I spoke to a group of leaders a few weeks ago before uh, George Floyd's death and the beginning of our protests here in, in the UK. And I wasn't discussing the issue of racism in particular, but at the end, I did mention that all I'd said was applicable to the issue of racism. And then I braced myself for what was coming. This usually uh, 
lovely group of leaders put on their friendly, smiley, but slightly glazed, there she goes again, expressions. Now I've had to face those expressions for over 30 years of ministry and I still dread it. So sometimes it takes a real provocation to get me to the point of raising the issue. But I know that sometimes it just has to be me. Not all the time, but sometimes I have to do it. The task for those on the receiving end of injustice is to raise their voice as and when it's right for them to do so. Not necessarily to answer every question but to point to what is wrong. This means we won't always get to choose our battles because sometimes they'll choose us simply because of who we are, who we know, and what we see that maybe no one else sees. You won't always make the right call, but you've got to find a way to use your perspective to bring perspective, even if you feel you're not necessarily being taken seriously. Sometimes I find myself blessed with allies who just seem to get it. I don't have to explain too much. They've already noticed the glazed eyes and the bored expressions, and they're ready to challenge both, even if they stood to benefit from things just the way they are. These allies are a bit like the apostles in this story who belong to the dominant group, but once the matter is brought to their attention, don't need persuading because they recognize it as truth. And they respond by using their influence to facilitate change. They effectively declare Greek Hellenist lives matter. Not because Hebrew lives don't matter, but because right now it's Hellenist lives that are at stake and endangered. Notice they didn't even bother to set up an inquiry. They simply recognized that a turnaround, what we call repentance, would be necessary for everyone. So how do you use your influence, especially if you're part of the dominant group? And especially if you're a decision maker at work or in your community, what do you do when you suspect systemic racism is at play in your business, your place of study, in your office or your neighborhood? How do you challenge it? We all have influence even if it's just with our circle of friends or our own kids? How do you use your influence to address systemic issues? Let me show you how the apostles dealt with it. First, they brought the issue to the attention of the entire church. In other words, they got it out into the open so everyone could see it for what it was. I guess everyone simply listened and paid attention to the grumblings and complaints of the Hellenists without getting defensive or overwhelmed by shame or guilt. I sometimes have to say to groups I work with on diversity issues, we need to get beyond your feeling bad about this. My only interest here is how we can change this. Second, the apostles did more than talk. Talking is never enough. They proposed a structural solution, a solution that was partly designed to make sure that they didn't take their eyes off another ball and partly designed to ensure that the issue was properly dealt with. So they proposed the release of considerable people resources to address it. 
And then they invested those same people with their own authority by laying hands on them in front of everyone. Third, they made the whole church take ownership and responsibility for the decision because the church had to put forward the best people the church had to offer. We see that in Acts 6 verse 4. Friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them this task. Perhaps the fact that the choice appears to have been unanimous is a sign there was a true turnaround and that the congregation faced their prejudices fair and square. Because interestingly, they ended up entrusting the welfare of both the Greek and the Hebrew widows entirely to Greeks, the ones who had been wronged. All the people chosen had Greek names. They were all Hellenists. Now, in our politically correct environment, we would offer parity. We'd say, let's make half the team Hebrews and half Greeks, half traditionalists and half new church, half men and half women, half old and half young. But this kind of thinking can sometimes maintain the status quo through the back, back door. What's needed and what's always needed is a radical, Christ-centered, faith-filled solution. Can you imagine what this must have felt like as the rest of society looked on? Now, this story is often used to illustrate the need for distributed leadership or the importance of serving the poor, but it's much more than either of these. Because at the beginning of Acts 6, you remember the disciples were uh, described as increasing by leaps and bounds. But by the end of chapter 6, after the issue was being addressed, we're told the word of God prospered and spread, verse 7. This means they now enjoyed an ever-widening circle of influence. In other words, they didn't just grow numerically. We see that. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. But they also spread beyond the kind of people they had succeeded in reaching before. Even many priests submitted themselves to the faith, we're told. Never settle for growth. Pray that you'll spread gospel influence into people, groups, systems, and structures you've never been able to reach or serve before. It's not just distributed leadership or service to the poor that advances the kingdom. Here is the commitment to justice that drives church growth. Church, it's really difficult to tell the world to change if we're no more than a mirror image of our society. We have an answer, but we must also be the answer. This is what it meant for the early believers to follow Jesus in their version of a racialized world. We can't afford to do any less if we want to be the generation that pivots towards a radical new normal and to kingdom advance. This is what it means to follow Jesus in our racialized world. God bless you. Thank you so much, Kate, for what has been a powerful message. 
There's so much, isn't there, for us to digest. There's so much for us to think about. There's so much for us to learn and unlearn, as we said last week. But Kate's message has only served to highlight that further. And there's so much opportunity for us to change and repent and grow. And there's hope. There's hope for us as we stand against the racism and the injustice that we see around us. And as we choose to be the answer, not just have the answer, as Kate said, but as we choose to be and become the answer, there's hope that we can see this systemic racism dismantled for this next generation coming. So we're grateful to you, Kate. Your voice to us is heaven sent. We're listening to you. And as a church family, we are committed to moving forward in the strength of what we've heard. Why don't we pray together? Lord, help us. Lord, guide us. Teach us. Give us your courage to be your answer in this world, to be your hands, your feet, your mouthpiece, your heart. Lord, we say that we will choose to dismantle systemic racism in our own hearts, in your church, in every sphere of society and in the whole world. So Lord, give us your courage. Would you guide our footsteps? Thank you that you are doing amazing things at this time and we choose to partner with you and say amen to everything that you are doing. Amen. Amen. Well, a few updates from us as promised. Tonight at 7pm, we have our prayer and worship Zoom. Come and join us. They're so much fun. We love our times together. Thank you to Rachel Maddox and Sue Gibson. You facilitate them so beautifully. On the 20th of June, we have the women's event. Uh, all of the information is on social media, but also in your emails, ladies. So do come along to that 20th of June. This week we have been able to give out prepaid shopping cards to 16 families and households that need them. And we also gave out food deliveries to many families into the community, including four new families. Um, we've been given their names by Kings Road School, who we partner with in normal times outside of lockdown. Uh, they needed some help, so we were able to assist those four families. Isn't that amazing? One final thing is that Nikki and I are just about to go on a few days annual leave, actually starting tomorrow. And we would love for you to pray for us, please, if you wouldn't mind. Give, we want to have refreshing and rest, but also we want to know how to lead this beautiful church forward as we emerge from lockdown into this brave new world. We want God's wisdom, God's strategies, and we also need loads of refreshing. We love you guys. We can't wait to see you when we come back from holiday. But if you would pray for us, that would be awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Take care. See you soon.